Hi, all, and welcome to this episode of 131 and Counting. We are so excited to have Shannon Hossinger with us today to tell us a little bit about her experience on the Hill and in the policy world in D.C. Shannon, we're so grateful to have you with us. I'd love to just get started by hearing a little bit about you and how you got started in Washington and how you ended up where you are now with Braven. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thrilled to be here. I'm really excited about this podcast and its whole premise. Um, so I am actually from Indiana, which I think is <laughs> relevant to my career path. And I sort of had two things that happened very early on that I think have like followed me and really been pivotal in what my trajectory went on to be. So one, I was I came from a really politically involved family. So my dad was on city council and he ran for judge and ran the chamber of commerce in my local town. So my parents were very politically involved for different parties. Um, so it was kind of just instilled from a very early age that community and civic involvement are super important. And I think that was part of what sort of drew me to DC. And then the second piece was I went to four different elementary schools in five years. So like from a very early age, I'm like, you know, 10 years old and I'm already seeing firsthand just totally disparate education quality, even across one district in Indiana. So I've just always also been super passionate specifically about education, education policy, and how it can kind of be the great equalizer. Um, so those have sort of been the two tensions that have what I've gone back and forth for in my career. So after college, I I had interned on the Hill in college and really caught the bug. Like I was one of those people that just loved it. I thought this place is so amazing. Where else can a 20 something be working on such big pivotal issues that have a huge impact on people in society. Like I loved it, but I also was super passionate about education policy and I ended up joining teach for America. Mm. So just really cared about their mission. Um, taught for three years, taught high school English in Tennessee, which was a doozy. <laughs> and then really wanted to come out to DC after that, but had no idea how to go about that. Like I knew I wasn't just going to show up at my Senator's door and say, hi, like I was a great teacher, please hire me. So I got my master's in policy in between and did some state work for a while for the governor of Massachusetts, and then moved out here and started as a fellow on Capitol Hill and then ended up working my way up. And I just left the Hill recently after six years. Um, I was on the Senate side the whole time working on education, um, workforce, and healthcare policy. And then now I'm the director of public policy for a national education organization called Braven. Wow. Well, uh, first of all, I love, we, I'm like weirdly passionate about local government. So I love hearing about your dad being on city council and I'm going to pick your brain about that some other time. Um, we know how important local government is and we know how important um, kind of those smaller roles that people don't talk about as much are. So really cool to hear about your start. Um, kind of before I move on, I, I would love to just touch on it. And, and you know, uh, this was not in your original question. So feel free to stop me at any time, Shannon. But uh, you know, when you really got into this education policy space, you know, what specifically have you seen to be the biggest challenges in that space? And again, I'm sorry, just hearing you talk made me want to know, you know, it seems like you've worked in this space for a long time. I hear why you were originally inspired to go into this space. Um, and I'm wondering what you've seen as the biggest challenges and what has made you persevere and go on to, you know, you know, going to being on the, from being on the Hill to now being, you know, a policy director at this nonprofit, um, what's inspired you to keep going in the face of those issues? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think 
What has been really shocking for me in this space is that so many of the different advocacy orgs that exist don't put necessarily put students first. So, you know, there's a lot of different organizations fighting for a lot of different things. And it really breaks my heart, honestly, to see kind of education become a space over the last few years in particular, where like all these culture wars are breaking out. Because at the end of the day, what really matters is like, what is benefiting students? Like, I don't care if they're going to a public school, a private school, or a charter school, if that student is flourishing. And that's like what our focus and mind should be on. So I think that is getting tough is um, politics, I think, are playing a much larger role in this space than they necessarily were before when like education for a long time was kind of the two things that I think both sides could agree on. Um, and I think what has kept me staying in it is just that I do have just this underlying core belief that no matter what zip code you're from, no matter what your your background is, you know, what income level your family is, what education level your parents have, like education can be and should be the great equalizer. Everybody deserves access to a great education. And if you're following the steps that like societally we have told you to follow and you're working hard in school and you're applying yourself and you're going to a four-year institution, like I I believe at my core that like that should pay off. And we don't always see that be the case. And so I think that's what keeps me in it every day. But when you really just believe in the work that you're doing, it really helps you to keep going, even in the face of all of the challenges and obstacles. Yeah. And I mean, it, how crew, I mean, it's, it's not a space that I've worked in personally, but I mean, I, I, I really relate to what you're speaking on that it's such that education is the equalizer. I mean, I think that's a statement that's been heard before and um, it's really good. We have, you know, people like you focusing in on these issues again, just a little off topic. Um, but, you know, one of the things with this podcast is we're trying to relate, you know, bring in younger audiences. Actually, the other day on Instagram Reels, I saw that. Are, is, it, is it true that public schools are funded by property taxes or was that just something on the Internet that I read? So that is still true in a lot of places. It used to be true everywhere, which is insane to think about. And it makes total sense. Like, even if you think about whatever town you grew up in, if it, you kind of know you have a sense even as a kid of like, this is the good public school and this is the not as good public school. And a lot of that comes from the fact that local money is what's funding like 90% of education. Even today, I mean, federal dollars are like 10% of K through 12 monies. Um, Really? I feel like not everyone knows that. Yeah. So it's like actually not as much a federal focus as a lot of other policy areas. Um, And it used to be basically almost entirely funded based on local property taxes. So you can imagine like the richer the houses in your community, the better, the more money you have for school. Right. right. A lot of states and cities have now fixed that and have gone to like more of like a pooled source of funds. And then they kind of display it uh, equitably, but it kind of just varies very much depending on the place now. Well, thank you for straightening that out for me because I saw that. I was like, wait, that really puts a lot of puzzle pieces together on why like, we're still experiencing education, not having the, uh, being able to be the equalizer because even the public schools are so much nicer in different places. So thanks for lending your expertise on that. And a big shout out to Shannon because I've totally gone off script and she's handling every question so, so well. Um, I do want to switch gears a little bit. As you know, this podcast is, you know, really focused on some of the, uh, the female purview of Washington and, and, and your experiences within that. 
specifically throughout your six years on the Hill, and and if you also maybe have experienced this some in the nonprofit world, although I know that maybe in Washington is a little more female based, at least from my personal experience. Um, did you feel like you were I don't, treated differently than your male colleagues, or had different barriers to overcome? You know, as a woman throughout your career in Washington. Uh, I do, and I think for me at least, I didn't experience like outright sexist comments or sexual harassment or anything to that extent, um, luckily. Um, But I would say for me, it played out in a few different ways. So one, when you're a young female starting in the Hill, I do think there is this tendency for your male supervisors to constantly be pushing you into administrative work. Um, You'd be a great scheduler. You're so organized. You should be a scheduler. You should be an EA, which is great if that's Mm -hmm. the route that you want to go on and that's the work that you're in, but when you're coming in, like declaring that you have this interest in policy and they're constantly trying to force you into this other lane, it can be very frustrating. And I know I've had several other friends on the Hill who've said that they've experienced the same thing. So I think like one, there's outright bias there that can be sort of underlying and frustrating. And then there's like just little things like there was one office in particular where in the Monday all staff meeting, it would be all of the men are sitting at the giant conference table and all of the female staffers are like scattered at the chairs in the corners of the room. <laughs> and it was like never talked about. Um, but it was just you're under- like being more polite. You're like, oh yeah. Well, like it was sort of like, oh, this like, is like, oh wait, I should have <laughs> you know, that didn't like, probably didn't a- go through no fault of those <laughs> gentlemen's heads that never went through their head that they shouldn't take the good seat, probably. You know, they were like yeah, it's like who literally has a seat at the table? I think that was sort of the irony of that. And then, you know, just a few, like I had a few meetings where it would be like, we're we're in a room with the senator talking about a very serious topic. And then afterwards, one of the males on my team is like, is everything okay? You weren't really smiling in that meeting. You're usually so smiling. And it's like, uh, we were talking about like prescription drug overdose. Like, should I be laughing? Like, what does that like? Yeah. Just little things like that. I think there's yeah. like little um, challenges that women face, but in my experience, overwhelmingly, I had a very positive experience. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's a testament to, you know, women that have gone before us and have really paved the path. And then as well as, you know, men that have been allies and have been more inclusive. Um, and, you know, now it's kind of a different sort of, you know, smaller battles of like, you know, wanting to make sure people are keeping all of those doors open, you know, I mean, that's something that comes a lot up a lot with women in STEM, like, it is always celebrated when a woman is in STEM, but, you know, getting to that core of how do we make sure the doors are open so that it's not just kind of like, oh, scheduling would be great for you. It's also policy would be amazing for you, those kind of smaller things. So thank you for sharing your experience on that. And I think a lot of people relate to um, that kind of situation. I I do want to jump to a question just because we were kind of on it. I mean, thinking of that almost subconsciously, sometimes women are getting pushed more to those scheduling roles. As someone that's been on the Hill, you know, why do you think that we're still at this count? So this year is a record-breaking year, 153 women in Congress, but that's still out of 535. You know, as someone that has really been on the inside and has also, you know, been in Washington, even outside of the Hill, you know, what's your take on why we're still seeing way lower numbers of, you know, women in Congress? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things going on, but a few that stand out to me. I think one, um, I will say as a woman who maybe would have considered that earlier in my career as an option and has now seen how the sausage is made, I think that, 
we just need women to actually step forward and want to do it is like the first piece. I think like it is a tough job. You're really pushing yourself, putting yourself in the public domain and opening yourself up to a lot of criticism. And I, and you're doing a ton of like fundraising and all of your mm-hmm. is basically fundraisers. And I think mm-hmm. I'm, my instinct is that a lot of women probably look at that and say like, mm, no, thanks. Like, I don't feel the need to be known. I want to help people. And like, do I need to be public mm-hmm. to do that? I think too, when women do put themselves forward to run, like we need to be supporting them. And I think I'm personally frustrated that there's kind of become like a litmus test for like, you have to be a female who thinks this about this issue or looks this way or whatever. Like, I think we should just be supporting more women holding, you know, public positions in general. Yeah. You know, raising money, donating to them, donating time. And then I think the third thing Um, Is that we all need to also look internally at like where we might actually have some bias that is holding women back from reaching an equal number. I think, you know, when, when you, you equally hate and are irked by like Hillary Clinton and Elizabeth Warren and Nikki Haley and Sarah Palin. And like, it's all of these women with totally different viewpoints, totally different backgrounds come across, you know, all different ways. And you don't like any of them. Like maybe it's time to like internally consider like what bias might I have here and against like yeah. positions of power? And like, I assume that only men should be assertive and women shouldn't be assertive. And so I do think there's like an external component of supporting people and putting yourself out there, but there's also an internal component of like, if I'm not voting for any women and I don't like any of them for all different reasons, like maybe something else is going on. There. <laughs> yeah, And you know, I've seen that from men and women too, where someone will just be like, well, she's just annoying. And I'm like, actually not actually a reason to not like vote for someone like that's just an adjective like what do you think about the policies that she's you know like you know do you think she'd be a good representative of her constituents like yeah on that note the thing about how they say that you vote for someone for president who you like want to grab a beer with with them oh my god it's not the best indicator it's It's actually really not (laughs) on, on all sides um uh yes I was, okay well thank you for for answering that question um one thing that I that I do want to I do want to hear a little bit about give you some space to share um about Braven right now you know what um what's kind of their mission statement and maybe a current issue they're working on you'd like to share with listeners I just want to open that up to because this organization sounds really incredible so I want to open it up for uh, listeners just to hear more about it yes definitely so. Braven had been on my radar for a few years before I came to work here, just because it was started by a Teach for America executive. And obviously as a former Teach for America core member, um, I had sort of seen them and I thought the mission was really cool. So it was started by a woman named Ame Umeks Davis, and she is a black woman from the South side of Chicago, sort of rose up through Teach for America, was a high level executive there and sort of noticed what we talked about earlier of like, even these students from underrepresented backgrounds who are going to college, finishing college, getting four-year degrees, even from like elite institutions, still are not landing as well as their more affluent peers. Um, They're still making 50 cents on the dollar mid-career, like regardless of what institution they attended. And she sort of started to think about like, okay, how do we tackle this problem? So Braven has this really unique mission of not just helping underserved students complete college, but really focusing on the six months after and helping them land a strong first job. So Braven is a career accelerator. Um, it partners with institutions of higher education to serve, and when I say underserved students, I'm talking about first-generation students, I'm talking about low-income students, I'm talking about students of color, 
who are already at those four-year institutions. And we essentially offer a career course that's for credit as part of their university experience all around how do you sell yourself? How do you even figure out what you want to do? Once you figure that out, how do you apply for jobs? How do you find jobs? How do you network? And then we really stay with them. They usually take that course sophomore or junior year, and then we stay with them through six months after college graduation, helping them get internships, um, setting them up with mentorships for people in the career field that they want to work in in their local area, um, and then helping them land that strong first job. So it's all around, we can't have true equity if we're seeing that a four-year degree, even from great institutions, isn't leading to equity. And that's kind of where Braven comes in. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that because that is that is a really exceptional mission. And I think it brings up, you know, one thing I I come from a nonprofit background and like, you know, a big buzzword is like systematic change. You know, like if you're doing something at the surface level, you know, that's great, but it's, you know, how do you how do you make your investment and make like a long-lasting impact? So um I think that that's that's a, it's great to hear about your organization. Um kind of as we come to the tail end of the interview. Um, obviously, uh, for some of our, you know, people that are more established that are listening, of course, you know, there's different ways to, I'm sure, donate to Braven. Um, one of the things that I, I, I do want to make a point of this podcast is also giving people, you know, opportunities for, you know, activism and involvement. And, and I'm just wondering if we, as we finish up, is there anything that, you know, young people, people that might not have, you know, disposable income to give, um, uh, can get involved with, you know, organizations like Braven or in Washington, you know, as someone that's been in Washington, how can young women and men, um, you know, get involved in the community through Braven and uh, through other avenues? Yeah, well, I will do the Braven pitch because I'm actually really glad you mentioned that. Thank you. (laughs) Um, But one of the things that's great, because obviously we're all like, oh, I want to volunteer more. Oh, I want to get more involved. But you don't necessarily, everybody has different time commitments that they can commit to. Um, And so Braven has a couple of different paths. Like one, we have weekly programming that is led by leadership coaches who are like local employers in that student's field. So like someone who has, who can commit two weeks or two hours every week could be a leadership coach that's actually like helping run Braven programming with these college students. If you don't have that kind of commitment, but you would like to be a mentor who checks in with a student and is checking in with their internship progress and helping provide advice, you can sign up to be a professional mentor And then we also have just like one-off opportunities where you could just be a mock interviewer or you could sign up for one of our networking nights where you're just interacting for two hours, one night, um, and that's your full commitment. So I think that's one great thing about Braven is that there's sort of this scale um, level you want to be engaged. Um, But I would just say like, this is one thing I'm really working on because I think I was great about it when I first moved to the DC area. And now that I've been here seven years, um, I'm like, wow, I really want to get out there more and just work to foster more community and just like... Don't be shy about signing up for things, showing up to things alone, showing up even though you don't know anybody, because that's actually how you make like all of your most meaningful relationships here, I feel like. Oh, that's so true. It's when you're at the networking party alone and you're like, if I keep drinking this glass of wine in this corner, people are going to think I'm crazy. So I better go talk to somebody. (laughs) Better just go up there. I go to networking events and I'm like, my goal is to talk to two people. And after I talk to those two people, I can like either go home or go hang out with friends, but I'm going to meet two people. So thank you for sharing that. And Thank you so much, Shannon, for coming on. You've shared so much helpful stuff. I appreciate you being patient with me as I've gone off script, just because once you started talking about the education, I was like, this is an expert and I've got to pick her brain. (laughs) So um, just want to 
say thank you for joining us, Shannon. And, um, you know, uh, looking forward to having listeners hear from you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me.